Welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization and Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and with me today is Dr. Patricia Riesick. Uh, Dr. Riesick is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University, and she's the former director of the Women's Health Sciences Division of the National Center for PTSD in Boston. Welcome, Dr. Riesick. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Cool. Uh, basically, you know, the, the reason I wanted to talk with you today and to, to get your perspective on mass violence is that you are the developer of one of the frontline treatments for mental health problems among victims of trauma and mass violence in particular, and that's cognitive processing therapy. And I'm going to ask you some questions about that in just a minute, but before we get there, I thought I would just ask you a little couple of questions about what are some common mental health problems that confront victims of mass violence? If a trauma is bad enough nearly everyone is going to have some symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Okay. Most people recover if they have good support, if they don't avoid, if they talk about it, if they deal with their emotions. However, if people avoid and don't talk about it, or they start drinking to try to put the memory away, or they get depressed because they blame themselves that they should have done something different, they might get depressed. So we often see in some people the development of post-traumatic stress disorder that can become very chronic, depression, substance abuse, fear and anxiety. Okay. And is there is there kind of a relationship between PTSD and depression, or are they different disorders? About 50% of people who have PTSD also have major depressive disorder. So there is a little bit of overlap, but I think having PTSD is depressing because you're avoiding right. doing things. You're, you're avoiding going out, and, and you're blaming yourself, and you're feeling horrible about yourself, and that's fairly depressing. Mm -hmm. And are those the kinds of problems that cognitive processing therapy, the treatment that you developed, are, are created to address? Oh, exactly, yes. Um, in fact, that's why I developed uh, it as a cognitive therapy so that we could deal with guilt and shame and depression as well as fear and anxiety. You mentioned cognitive therapy. Um, what is cognitive therapy and how is it different from like other types of therapy that a, a client might get by going to their mental health center or, or wherever? Well, if they went to a mental health center with someone who is not treated at all in PTSD, they're likely to get supportive therapy. Okay. And that probably means they're not going to be talking about the trauma. If they're going to get one of the frontline therapies for PTSD, that means it's going to be trauma-focused. They are going to be talking about the trauma. Mm -hmm. Now, prolonged exposure is one form of therapy where they go over the traumatic event over and over and over in detail, and then they do behavioral exercises to help them with their fear and anxiety. Cognitive processing therapy, on the other hand, focuses on your thoughts, which is what the cognitive part means. It means your thinking. And what we have found is that many people develop what we call stuck points because mm -hmm. they're thoughts that keep them stuck in their PTSD. Things like, it's all my fault. I should have done something different. If only I had done this, I could have saved someone. 
those kinds of thoughts. And gotcha. if they believe those, then they get stuck in their PTSD. Gotcha. So that's, you've said a couple things there that really kind of resonate with me as, as someone who, who provides treatment to folks. Um, the, the way I like to explain um, PTSD to people is stolen right out of one of your books, I think, uh, which is that PTSD is basically a, a disorder of non-recovery. And um, as, as you've said, when something really terrible happens to people, it's awful. People have nightmares. They can't stop thinking about what happened and so forth. But over time, people recover, and PTSD is basically the process of not recovering. And what I like about CPT is that you've got this sort of metaphor of being stuck and these stuck points. And from your perspective, what keeps people stuck is these very problematic, troubling thoughts. And um, that's what CPT is basically addressed to hone in on. And how do, how do people change those thoughts? I mean, I, I know that um, it's you, there's sort of this joke amongst therapists that, you know, oh, just change the way you think and you'll have a, a, a totally different outlook on life. And if it were that simple, I actually don't think people in our profession would be necessary. So what's that process like where people can actually change their thoughts? Right. You can't convince somebody to change their mind. Mm -hmm. You can't say, oh, it's your, not your fault, and then just I, believe you. <laughs> I saw that in Goodwill Hunting, though. Robin Williams chases Matt Damon around the room, and it works. Is that is that no. not what's he, no, okay, no. bummer. Unfortunately, that doesn't work that way. We use a lot of what we call Socratic questioning, which means asking the, the patient questions, and they have to think through, what was the situation actually like? How much time did I have? How big was the person? How many um, people were involved that also had some responsibility or not? Um, was it actually preventable? And so we ask them questions to help them figure out for themselves that perhaps there wasn't anything they could do about it, and therefore it isn't their fault. And when you change your thoughts, you change your emotions. Mm -hmm. If you're blaming yourself, you're going to feel guilt. If you're blaming other people who were nearby, and erroneously perhaps, you might feel angry at mm -hmm. them. Very often, the one thing that, that people tend to leave out of their memory of the event is the perpetrator, mm -hmm. the one who caused the mass violence. They play no role in this right. because they're focusing on themselves and those around them as if they could have prevented it mm -hmm. um, and forget who actually had the intent to do harm. Yeah. And, and so we have to ask them questions to kind of guide them through that. But we, use it, we do it by a series of um, progressive worksheets. And we teach them what's an event and how's that different than a thought. And if you think that thought, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And then we start teaching them, we start asking questions, but then we start teaching them to ask those questions for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they start to actually really examine their stuck points. And we want them to feel their natural emotions, but we want them to change erroneous thoughts so that those erroneous emotions mm -hmm. will just go away then. Because if you change your thought, your feeling will change. So it sounds like there's a connection between sort of a, a natural emotion and a, a correct thought, or is is there some other kind of, like, maybe a better question to start with is, um, what makes something a natural emotion? Well, we all have natural emotions. Mm -hmm. If If you are in imminent danger, it is totally natural to feel fear. Okay. 
fact, it would probably be abnormal if you didn't feel fear okay. if your life is being threatened. You may have a fight-flight response. Um, military personnel are taught to, to go forward instead of backward. So they're taught to fight instead of flee. And so they may feel anger automatically mm-hmm. because of training and training and training. But a lot of us civilians out there in the world are going to have a flight response, and we're going to feel fear. And that's absolutely natural. I'm we're kind hard of a runner myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so is the opposite of a natural emotion an unnatural emotion? Well, it's a, it's a manufactured. Um, okay. But it's manu- it's manufactured because you're basically um, thinking something that turns out not to be true. Like, okay. if I had done this, I could have stopped the event. When, in fact, if we go back and look at what options they had, perhaps they couldn't have done anything. Right. So if they change the thought, then their emotion is going to change. Okay. And they may feel sad that it happened. Or they may be angry at the perpetrator for having done it, but they're not going to keep trying to blame themselves or or blame somebody who was right next to not them. Involved. Okay. That, that, I mean, I think that's um, something that's really key is, is helping people understand those connections that uh, I think a lot of times people feel like their emotions are just th- these out-of-control things that happen to them. There's nothing I can do about about my emotions. I don't really understand where they come from. And one of the very interesting and effective parts of CPT is helping them understand that emotions are the consequences of different kinds of thoughts. And those worksheets that you mentioned really are helpful in helping patients make those kinds of connections in a in kind of an organic way. I mean, it's like you say, you can't talk someone out of something related to their PTSD. Right. They'll just dig their heels in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so... Um, you mentioned that there were some other types of, of mental health treatment. You mentioned prolonged exposure. You mentioned supportive therapy. Um, can you contrast CPT with, with those treatments in some way, or is, is CPT just better than those other treatments? Uh, is, is CPT what everybody should be getting? <laughs> like to say yes. <laughs> um, no, in our in our research, it looks like um, from the prior research we've done, it looks like CPT and cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure have very similar um, results with regard to um, fear and anxiety and even depression, which okay. tends to follow the the. PTSD. Where we see a difference is with the guilt and shame and hopelessness and some of those more cognitive types of emotions. Um, And that's where we've seen that even up to five and six years later that people are doing better um, with regard to those kinds of guilt, shame, um, sadness. Well, sometimes they avoid sadness, but um, any of those other kind of more cognitively based Emotions. Okay. You're listening to the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. And with me today is Dr. Patricia Riesick, the developer of cognitive processing therapy. And we're talking mental health treatment for mass violence victims. Uh, Dr. Riesick, um, for anyone out there who might be a mass violence victim uh, and who's listening today 
and recognizing in themselves some of the symptoms that, that you've mentioned today, uh, some of the depression, some of the self-blame, uh, getting stuck in their PTSD symptoms, avoidance, things like that. What kind of suggestions do you have for folks like that in terms of accessing effective mental health services? If someone is a veteran, there have been more than five, there are more than 5,000 people trained in CPT, and I don't know how many, but thousands are also trained in PE all over the country. So that's a good resource for veterans. Unfortunately, in this country, because we don't have a universal health care system, it really is a very state-by-state um, access to the evidence-based treatments. There are some states where they have done many, many um, what we would call a rollout or a dissemination project. Texas has got a lot of people who can do CPT and PE. And North Carolina, because that's where I am now and we're doing a lot mm -hmm. of dissemination, has a lot of people. One place to look is on uh, the CPT website, and okay. that is cptforptsd.com. And that's for FOR, right? Not the number four? Right. Okay. And if you look at, at cptforptsd.com, there is a provider roster, and that means that there's a list of, I think, about 650 people so far, and the number is growing as we do more workshops, and people and, and therapists who do this have got to meet requirements to be on this roster, and that means they want to be seeing clients mm -hmm. um, and have the ability to do CPT. They've been, they've been to the workshop, They've picked up cases under, under supervision for at least six months. They passed, you know, that they have done it uh, mm -hmm. adequately, and then we put them on the roster. So it's possible to look and see who's available in your state. So they didn't just raise their hand and say, please put me on the roster. No. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, that, I mean, that that sounds like a great resource for folks to, to check and see if there's a CPT provider who's um, trained and, and at least um, credentialed. I guess, uh, by the folks who've developed cognitive processing therapy. What if someone's out there and they check the website and there's no one within 100 miles who provides CPT? Are there, are there things for, for those kinds of folks to do? Yes, possibly. Um, there uh, have been a number of studies now that have looked at telehealth, which means doing it over a computer. And we've now moved from veterans who had to go to a VA and do it on a VA computer mm -hmm. to now being able to do it on a tablet or a computer from someone's home. Mm -hmm. And we know that it works equally well if you do it through a computer than if you do it in person. Mm -hmm. And so if you can find somebody in your state, they might be able to do it as a telehealth treatment. And they would send you the manual and the materials, and you would meet them like FaceTime um, Cool. We've also recently piloted a texting form of the therapy. Wow. Um, OMG, I guess I should say. <laughs> and that hasn't gotten, you know, we don't have a lot of research on that. We've only done a pilot on it. But okay. it actually, the, it, it seemed to be that there were only, there were two groups. There were people who just couldn't do it at all that mm -hmm. way. Um, they needed more face-to-face, -face, and they really needed somebody behind them kind of helping push them out of their avoidance. The other group did spectacularly well. Wow. Um, so that seems to be a, a two-group therapy mm -hmm. so far with just okay. the piloting we've done. But th that means that they're doing the worksheets. They, they, they get sent a workbook that walks them through the CPT and has a lot of the material that the therapist would have said in session with mm -hmm. them. And... 
then they're um, given assignments to move on, and they can move on at their own pace, and they're averaging about four weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they can do it pretty quickly because they're doing a couple of texts a day, and the therapists are only obligated to text you know, twice a day, five days a week. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, that was a question I was going to get to, but you sort of uh, just alluded to there that that with this text-based form, therapy can go by pretty quickly. If if someone is receiving CPT, what what should they expect in terms of a duration of treatment? I mean, I think a lot of folks out there, when they think about psychotherapy, particularly psychotherapy for a condition that's as potentially as severe as post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe the stereotype in their head is that they're going to be in treatment for a year, two years, forever. Um, is that the kind of treatment that cognitive processing therapy is? Is it is it kind of an indefinitely long treatment? No. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. And in fact, if, if a therapist tells you that you cannot get over your PTSD, find another therapist. Because mm-hmm. um, unfortunately... I've heard that a lot. I mean, but people will say, oh, I have PTSD. It can't be cured. Yeah. I mean, you'll have it forever. Yeah. Um, or you can go do this other treatment, but then you'll have to come back to me because you'll have it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, um, the, the, that myth is still out there with people who haven't been trained. Um, in P- PTSD in particular, and not everybody's a specialist in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the standard protocol is 12 sessions. Wow. Um, it can be done once a week, but I prefer twice a week. Okay. Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday. Um, so that's like six weeks? You, six weeks. Okay. You can get it. And most of my research has been done um, ever since the early 2000s has been done with it mm-hmm. twice a week for six weeks. The other format we now have and we realize is that some people were dropping out of therapy because they actually were better faster. And so one of my colleagues looked at variable length CPT and found out that among civilians, um, there were uh, on average 58% finished faster than 12 sessions and about a quarter needed more. But by the end of three months, only one person still had PTSD. Wow. And so we've, we have had a tougher time with military. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't hit the, anywhere near that mark of early response. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about 59% did need some, some more sessions. We mm-hmm. went up to about 20 sessions is, I think, where we got to a really good end state, which mm-hmm. means a very low PTSD score. Um, okay. So, so I mean, I, I kind of just want to unpack that a little bit. So, basically, some of the things that I'm hearing you say is that PTSD is a treatable disorder. Yes. That we have more than one, uh, but certainly one that you like, <laughs> um, uh, effective treatment for PTSD. Um, that treatment of PTSD can be time limited. It is not sort of an unlimited find a therapist you like because you're going to be with them for years and years and years. Right. Um, And that uh, there are some technological innovations that are happening in CPT and perhaps some other treatments as well that allow people to access high-quality evidence-based treatment without actually having to live a mile or two away from a trained provider. Is is that an accurate? That's accurate. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I think the the reason I'm a big fan of the variable length is you put into it 
you're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it encourages people to actually do the practice assignments, mm-hmm. which we have found is very important. Mm-hmm. And they have to, like, not just drag their feet. I mean, yeah. if they drag their feet, they can do the therapy very poorly. Right. But if they throw themselves in and do the between-session practice... Well, that was... Uh, you, you mentioned between sessions, and that's interesting. I, just to sort of follow up on my comment, um, and we're talking with Dr. Patricia Riesick, the developer of cognitive processing therapy for PTSD. Um, I, I think a lot of people have this stereotype, uh, or maybe it's not a stereotype, and it, that therapy happens in the session with the expert, and that between sessions, uh, not much goes on, or, or there's just sort of this residual uh, glow, I guess, from from the session, and then by the time the next session rolls around, there's more magic that happens within that room. But if I'm hearing you correctly, you're talking about practice assignments, you're talking about worksheets, um, it, it sounds as though the patient is actually actively engaged and, and doing activities related to their treatment when they're not with their therapist. There are 168 hours in a week. And if they practice thinking the wrong way, in mm-hmm. other words, a way that is going to make them feel horrible about mm-hmm. themselves out of habit, for 166 or 167 hours a week, then what chance do we have? Mm -hmm. So we give them from the practice assignments to do every day so that it's right there. They can see it in black and white, Mm -hmm. and very often you'll get that aha moment, Mm -hmm. like, this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, when they they actually see it written down on these worksheets, that's the the marvel of the worksheets, Mm -hmm. is when they can come up with a good alternative thought and they can believe in that, then they can practice saying that. They can put stickies around their house Mm -hmm. and practice saying that instead of the old way of thinking. I think it's, that's fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by um, trying to explain to people how psychotherapy is not how they've seen it portrayed in movies and on TV um, over the years. Um, and and I think that's just sort of a, an absolute crystal clear example of that. I have yet to see a TV show, uh, even one that focuses on therapy that sort of covers here I am doing my therapy homework. Um, I mean, my personal riff on that is that therapy is not great TV because it's sort of slow and meticulous and, and not necessarily entertaining. And so why should it be in a movie? But anyway, that's probably a different subject. Um, I guess the, the last question I have for you is um, what do you think the future of cognitive processing therapy in particular and treatment for PTSD in general is uh, moving forward? Well, I I was going to respond by saying that that there is one place that you can go and actually hear actual therapy. Um, There was an episode of This American Life earlier this summer Mm -hmm. That oh, was, advertising another podcast. That was, oh, that was called 10 harsh. Sessions. Yeah. <laughs> but but one of my colleagues, Deborah Kaysen, actually agreed to do therapy with a reporter who had PTSD, and they recorded the whole thing. And she did it in two weeks. That was the other thing I was going to say mm-hmm. is I think the future, we're, we're now getting to the point where we're testing one week, two weeks, three weeks of therapy. Wow. So if people can take vacation and go and get their therapy done quickly— 
then they might need a few booster follow-up calls or, you know. So it's the psychological version of a rest cure, but there's not really much resting involved, I no, suspect. There's a, yeah. No, there's a lot of activity. But but if it gives them the opportunity to get over it quickly, then you, you break up that avoidance mm-hmm. pattern. And she did it in 10 days, basically two five-day weeks. And she wow. reported on the, the podcast that, mm-hmm. you know, a few months later she had no PTSD symptoms. Um, so there's some of that testing going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's going to also help with dropout rates mm-hmm. because I think when things drag on too long, people's lives interfere. Mm-hmm. And we don't want therapy to go on for years and years. And, and if they miss a session and they're only doing it once a week, now it's two weeks or it's three weeks. And then it's playing catch up like, what were we talking about? Mm-hmm. And oh, I haven't done any homework since the last session. And so then you're having to start over again. So I think the future is actually compressing these therapies, making them more accessible by things like like through telehealth and or, you know, if this texting thing mm-hmm. works out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we d- get more research on that and that works out, that may be another modality that can be used. But I think what we're going to be seeing is using more technology mm-hmm. and trying to reach people and treat them quickly so that they don't avoid, they don't drop out, because the avoidance is the big enemy here. Right, right. I know we talk about that a lot is, you know, avoiding avoidance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, Dr. Patricia Riesick, thank you very much. I appreciate your insights. I think that uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there for folks who are interested in mental health treatment following mass violence or really any kind of traumatic event. And we very much appreciate your insights. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Um, This is Dan Smith, the Director of Technology and Resources for the NMVVRC. And we'll be back soon to talk with you uh, and another interesting guest. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.